I really wanted to spend the day today just sitting at home with popcorn watching the congressional hearings, uh, but uh, I, I decided that was probably not the best use of my time, and, and I don't know why exactly I, I, I started class out with that, because I know that's just a slippery slope that I don't want to go down today, so, uh, but, but just going to be an interesting day to see how all that comes out. Uh, so I sent an email a couple weeks ago and, and talked about what I kind of felt was a vision for this year, for this class, and just figure for anyone who didn't read my emails or didn't get the email or just want to talk about it real fast, uh, just, you know, thought about, you know, what, I've had this idea a lot lately of what does the church look like in a post-pandemic world, right? What does the church look like? And I know, you know, in our lives, one of the greatest tools that I think the enemy uses to distract us from the church, from, to distract us from following Christ, is actually busyness, is this routine that we get into, that, how distracted we, we tend to get very, very quickly. And so for me, I, I look at this time that we've all had, this, this massive disruption in our schedules, as a fantastic opportunity. Uh, it's, it makes us all, one way or another, stop and stop and think and think about what really matters in our life, what, what we spend our time on, what we do, what we love. Uh, it, it's given us that opportunity for an actual disruption. And so as I, as I think about that thought process in terms of the church, I think about just how many people I used to engage with on a weekly basis who were just going through the motions of church. I mean, they, they, they would show up normally, they would sing, they would do lots of different things. Um, but you could tell they just were not actually engaged. And, and I've been there myself many, many times, but just weren't actually engaged. And so I see this year as a great opportunity to re-educate all of us on what it actually means to be part of a church, what it means to follow Christ, what it means in your life, what practically do you do? Uh, what, I mean, what, what, as a part of crossings, what is it that we're asking of you? You know, we, this, we'll probably never have a better opportunity to reorient people on what that actually means to be a Christ follower, a part of a church, uh, than we do right now. So as I kept going down that road thinking, what kept coming to my head was, well, what did, the, what did the early church do? You know, what, what, what did the early church make of? Whenever they're trying to explain to people what it meant to be part of a church, what it meant to follow Christ, what did the early church to, do? And so if you go back to the early church and you read in the book of Acts, and you read Acts 2.42 in particular, you'll see that the early church did a lot of things. And what it calls out is that they gathered daily in the temple courts. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the word of God. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread with each other. And I noticed this for the very first time when I read it, that they devoted themselves to breaking of bread in their homes. Right? So, I mean, there was something about getting together, eating together, being intimate in that way that was important to the early church. Uh, they devoted themselves to prayer. They were in awe and inspired by the miracles and the wonders they saw all around them. And then it says that they added numbers, they added people daily to the amount of people who had been saved. And so I thought about this of, as we reorient people back to church, what if we try to make this very simple, right? Let's go back to the early church. Let's devote ourselves daily to the word, to the teaching of God's word. Let's devote ourselves to, to, to being together, to breaking bread together, to, to doing these things just like the early church did. Use them as an example during this time. And so for us practically, what I really want us to do is I'd love us all to commit to two things. 
I'd like us to commit to reading God's Word together throughout this year. And so I sent out a reading plan, and, and I, I've gotten a lot of comments back on that reading plan I sent out. Everyone's really impressed with my handiwork on that reading plan. I did not do that. That was the Navigator. So Navigators is a parachurch ministry you guys may be familiar with. They put that reading plan together. They did a really good job. Um, but it's a very simple reading plan to start where if, if you've never been in the routine of daily reading God's Word, that's a great plan. It's five minutes a day, five days a week, and it takes you through the New Testament to begin with, uh, which is a lot easier to absorb from a habit standpoint than what a lot of people do when they get the motive to start a reading plan. They'll start in Genesis, and they'll get to Numbers, and when they get to Numbers, they give up, right? Or they get to Leviticus, and they say, who in the world is this God? And they'll give up, right? So, so I found, whenever I did my own start reading the Bible, I started the New Testament, uh, go through and... Um, you know, just develop a habit, and then it makes it easier to absorb the Old Testament whenever you come back through. So I'd encourage you to to read that each day. Just print that out, put it in the front cover of your Bible, keep a pen in your Bible, mark off the days as you go. What I'm doing personally is I'm reading that in advance of the week. Uh, I'm going through and just praying that God would reveal to me whatever it is he wants to teach to you guys. Uh, And then I do the research on that throughout the week and then prepare that throughout the week. So my, my goal is each week, I'm going to teach one passage, one portion of scripture that was within that five-day reading plan. So I'm not going to teach all five days of it. That would, you guys would be here for about eight hours every week. Uh, but I'm just going to pick one thing out of that reading throughout the week and teach on it. And so by the time we get all the way through this year, we will have taught through the entire New Testament in, in summary form, which will be a lot of fun. So I ask that you commit to do that this year. Uh, if you have another reading plan you're doing in another group or Sunday school class or anything, by all means, do it. But this is five minutes a day to commit with this group to be engaging in the Word together. And then when it is safe to do so, I would love us to organize some dinners, some outings, some different things to actually spend some time with each other, uh, just like the early church did. We'll, we'll be able to do that more easily whenever things are safer to do so. Um, so on that note, just if you have any questions about that, you know, throughout the week or anything, let me know. But the reading this week, the first five days of the reading plan, takes you through Mark chapter 1 through chapter 5. And as I was reading it, the thing that stuck out most to me was in Mark chapter 2, and it was this question that I kept asking myself as I was reading it, going, you know, Mark, Mark seems to very quickly hit on, hit on the point of Jesus' baptism. You know, Mark was the, Mark was the very first um, gospel written, and he doesn't start with the birth story. He doesn't start with any of that. He doesn't start with the genealogy that you see in Matthew. He starts with explaining who John the Baptist is and then explaining the baptism of Jesus. And so whenever I think about baptism, you know, I, I think about baptism in terms of my personal experience with baptism. You know, we get baptized as a symbol of our faith, right? We get baptized as a symbol of, of how as we have accepted our faith, as we've made the decision to follow Christ— Baptism for us is a way to show symbolically that we are dying to our old self and as we are brought up out of the water, our sins are forgiven and washed away and we start anew, we start a new life. And so our idea of baptism really goes back to the idea of baptism that John the Baptist was doing, baptizing all those people at the time out in the wilderness. It's this idea of repentance, of forgiveness of sins, of starting new, of washing clean our sins. 
So if that's my idea of baptism, and I suspect it's your idea of baptism as well, why did Jesus get baptized? Because right? you would think, based on that, that Jesus needed to sin to be baptized. Right? And, and based on Christianity 101, did Jesus ever sin? No. Right? Jesus did not sin. Right? So, so why did he need to get baptized? Does anyone have any thoughts on that, just as you were reading? Did that hit anybody else? Yep, and I think that's, that's one thing I've been taught before, that Jesus got baptized to show us right, something we need to do. I know Jeff Thompson sent me a note whenever he saw my questions that he had the same question as well. It's just you know, a bit of an odd thing. So, so we have time here to kind of dive into this, this idea of why was he baptized. So I'm going to start by reading verses 4 through 11 real quick. It says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit." In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So to answer this question of why was John baptized, or why was Jesus baptized, I thought it was kind of interesting to look at the two big questions John asked in his ministry, John the Baptist asked. He asked Jesus this same question, and we'll see this in Matthew here in a minute. If you go to Matthew 3, 13 through 15, you'll see that John asked Jesus the same question. He's pretty much saying, hey, why are you here? Like, why are you doing this? I'm not worthy to be baptizing you. It ought to be the other way around. John asked that question. And then John asked one more question about Jesus in, in, in the gospel narratives. And he asks a question to Jesus whenever John's in prison later on in this story. He sends word to Jesus to say, are you really the one? Are you actually the one that we've been searching for? Or should I continue looking for someone else? He asks him if he's the one, which is fascinating in itself. And we'll probably probably hit that one a little bit harder whenever we get to it uh, when it comes. But John was there for the baptism. He was there and experienced the miracle of, of the voice of God coming out and saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Right? He saw the dove descending, the spirit of God descending upon, upon Jesus. And he's still asking that question, are you the one? And I'll hit that a little bit as we go out throughout this lesson. But I want you to see that John was confused, too, about why Jesus needed to be baptized. He didn't feel like Jesus should be baptized. He didn't feel like he was worthy of baptizing Jesus. And so I want to kind of break down this passage, and let's see what the Bible is trying to tell us about this story, right? what, about, about the baptism, about who Jesus is. Let's try to break it down. And as I did that, and I researched this, the story came to light in a little bit different way to me. And the first thing I, I, I kind of found is this baptism narrative actually is doing more to tell us who Jesus is at the very beginning then it's answering why Jesus was baptized. So the first question is, who, who is Jesus? So the very end of this passage from uh, Mark chapter 2, 4 through 11 says this. It's, it's a voice came down from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What I did not know until I started researching this 
is that the people who were witnessing, the Jewish people at the time who were witnessing that, would have picked up that, that wording and would have realized that that was wording that was joining together two passages from the Old Testament. Right? The first passage that it would join together is Psalm 2. And I'm going to read you Psalm 2 here in just a minute. But the Jewish people would have heard that and said, that is Psalm 2. That is our messianic prophecy from Psalm 2. And let me read you Psalm 2. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, S-O-N, son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a messianic prophecy about the, the, you know, like I said, the Messiah that would one day come. What's the feeling? What feeling do you get whenever you read that prophecy? Hope. Hope. Hope, hope that the, this conquering king will one day come. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll say I found it hopeful uh, in that prophecy. I also found it a bit... Um, not necessarily fearful, but a bit, you know, hey, this is a big deal. This is, this is talking about a conquering king coming, right? This is talking about a king who, you know, knows how to conduct business, that will lead the people, that all the other kings in this world will bow down to. You know, there, there's a bit of a you need to make sure you turn and worship this king mentality to this prophecy. And, and this is really the crux of what the Jewish people believed the Messiah was going to be. Right, was going to come as this conquering king, this ruler, this political military ruler necessarily in the, in, the, in the line of David who would lead the people out of Roman bondage, would lead the people to, to prosperity. You know, that, this is the vision that everybody had as the Messiah. And so you think about this, this story that we're taking place in the Gospel of Mark is the very first story where Mark actually talks about Jesus at all. And it's him right before everything begins, right? No one has, no one has seen the miracles of Jesus. No one has, you know, has witnessed anything at this point, really. And so at that moment, he is being baptized, and God, the voice from heaven, comes down and says, you are my son, right? You are my son. And there, all those people would have been hearing this passage from Psalm 2, where he is saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you. They would see this reference to this conquering king, king messianic prophecy. But then the second, half of the, prophet, the second half of the voice where he says, with you I am well pleased, actually comes from Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 confused the Jewish people. They read Isaiah 42, they knew it was some sort of prophecy, they, they knew it was talking about something, but they didn't quite understand it. Because the the figure that's being talked about in Isaiah 42 doesn't sound just like this conquering king. He sounds a bit like what we would call today a suffering servant. 
So let me read Isaiah 42, and I want you to feel the difference between Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spreads out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. Keep this in mind. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You see this idea of this Messiah. This is a Messianic prophecy as well, but it sounds very different than Psalm 2. And we understand this very well as Christians today. We saw Jesus come the first time as a suffering servant. We see Isaiah 42 exactly play out in the ministry of Jesus. And we understand from Revelation and everything else that in the second coming of Christ, he will come as the conquering king. Right, so right here in this baptism narrative, I want you to see that God himself from heaven is telling us who Jesus actually is. We have an understanding of who Christ is because we've read this whole story. At the time, no one would have understood it completely. Right? This is the very first time that, that Christ is revealing who he actually is and what he's come to do. So that's kind of the second part of this, is really what he has come to do. So if we understand this, as Jesus is, is claiming to be the Messiah, he's getting confirmation from God the Father that he is the Messiah, we see this start. The next portion of this baptism lesson is telling us what he's trying to tell us with, with being baptized. So why, why does Jesus himself say he needs to be baptized? To answer that, we go to another gospel narrative. We go to the book of Matthew that gives us a little bit more color, a little bit more understanding uh, of this story. So let me read Matthew three thirteen through 15. And it says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So think about John here for a moment. John is legitimately confused. He does not understand why the one who is meant to be the Messiah is going to be baptized by him. He doesn't understand why Jesus is going to go through this whenever he is not. And what I found beautiful going through this is that this is the first time that we see Jesus tell us a very critical truth. And the truth he, he lets us know in this is that he has come as the Messiah, but he has come to stand in our place. John is confused because he thinks he ought to be in Jesus' place and Jesus ought to be in his place. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. 
I have come to fulfill all righteousness. The only way I can make this right, the only way I can redeem you, the only way I can redeem this world, the only way you can have the glory that is awaiting you, the only way that can happen is if I come and I stand in your place. Right? He didn't need to be baptized, right? He didn't need to be baptized to forgive his own sins. That was not necessary. But this is a beautiful symbol for us all that he's telling us, I am willing, I am willing to go and stand in your place. The second part of this uh, that you really see that he's telling us with his baptism is the people at the time would have looked at baptism a little bit like we do today. They would looked at it like an initiation of sorts, uh, just think about this in your lives, that whenever you're going to go out and put your mind to something or when you're going to commit to be a part of something, a lot of times there is some sort of symbolic initiation. How many of you guys have been in a fraternity or sorority in here, right? I'm sorry. If anyone in here has been in a sorority, we got, uh, we got some other uh, conversations we probably need to have, so Sorry. But you know what? I know y'all are paying attention to me now, so that's good. We got that going for you. So for those of you who have been in a fraternity, I bet whenever you joined said fraternity, you had a fairly interesting initiation that you had to go through in that fraternity. I was not in a fraternity, so I looked up in, in preparation for this lesson. I looked up some of the most interesting fraternity initiations that could happen. I also looked up some different sorority initiations. And I'm not going to share with you some of the most interesting ones that I found, but I will tell you this. My kids aren't going to college now. You know, so they will stay at home the rest of their lives and never go through what I just read about on the Internet. But you'll see this. People have different initiation routines. Look at this right now. Gangs, right? If you go and join a gang... Normally, the gang has a very has an initiation process. I mean, there's some gangs that the initiation is you have to go kill a rival gang member or a correctional officer. Uh, like I said, you think about this. There's an initiation into being a part of a movement, right? No matter what it is, it's a very common thing in our in our in just our human nature. And so, people would have understood that as well at that time. And so, whenever we think about baptism today. We're saying this is an outward public confession of our faith. This is a symbol of our faith. We are letting our family, our friends, our church, we're letting everyone know that we are committing to this life. That's part of baptism. You don't, people also, you know, often ask, do you need to be baptized to be a Christian? No, right? You need to have faith to be a Christian. Does Jesus show us the way and, and, and tell us to get baptized? Yes, he does, right? We ought to be baptized. Uh, but it's not some dogmatic thing that thou shalt be baptized or you can't have faith in Christ. But we do this as a bit of a symbol to show our initiation into being a Christian. Jesus is doing a bit of the same thing, only in a slightly different way. Jesus is accepting this baptism as an initiation into his ministry. Right? Because this is the first story that Mark tells. And then Mark is going to tell all kinds of stories where Jesus accepts the call that he has come to do. He accepts the ministry. And so from then on, we're going to see story after story after story of the ministry of Jesus. I was having to explain to my kids as we were walking through this that, you know, Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. 
right? I mean, people were shocked. You're going to read later in, in Mark where his family thinks he has gone mad whenever they hear what he is teaching and what he is doing. Jesus lived a humble, quiet life up to the age of 30, right? We don't read anything about what was going on. He is baptized and he is initiating his ministry with this baptism. All right, so I want you to think about that in terms of that's what he is doing. He is showing us that. I want to think about it with your personal walk. The idea of our baptism is that that also initiates you into the ministry of the church. It initiates you to give up your life, to die to yourself, to live for Christ, and to go outward and to live out that life. We see it in the extreme form with Jesus, but we're meant to follow that same example. And so the third little point I had on here is, okay, well, if that is true, right? If baptism is meant to be this initiation in some way, shape, and form, if that is true, what should we then expect to follow whenever we take our faith seriously, when we commit to be a part of this, uh, even if it's a recommitment, right? When we make that decision that, our faith is going to be the, the cornerstone of our life, that, that we are going to completely surrender, what should we expect? And what's interesting is that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have the baptism of Jesus, and they all explain immediately what happened after the baptism of Jesus. What happened after the baptism of Jesus? What was the first thing that happened? He was, tempta- he was tempted, right? The Spirit led him into the wilderness to where he was tempted, Right? And how often, I mean, how often, whenever you've had a Sunday, just think about that, whenever you've had a Sunday that Marty just hit you between the eyes with a sermon, uh, or you had a worship experience, or you, you went to a Bible study, or you had something where you said, I am, I am taking this seriously, I am, I am committing my life, I, I mean, I've, just, I, I've had those moments, and then the next week, you get tempted with something. Right? I, don't, I, don't, I want you to think that's not a coincidence. Right? We are always going to be tempted in big ways whenever we take our faith seriously, whenever we initiate ourselves into the ministry, when we follow Christ. Uh, I know, I've, I've told you guys before, like I said, the most serious decision I ever made, the hardest decision I ever made, was to leave my job and to come and, and, and to serve here at Crossings. I mean, it was a really hard decision, and I knew it was what God wanted me to do, uh, but it was very, very difficult for me to actually surrender and to and to leave. Uh, for a lot of personal pride, financial reasons, it was just a hard, very, very difficult decision for me to make. And I remember sitting around with the elders of this church whenever they were doing their final interview with me, and um, it was clear that we were all in agreement. They, were, they, were, they had offered me the job. They were, we were just having a good conversation. And I remember Bill Johnson. I don't know if you guys know Bill Johnson. He's a great man, uh, long-time leader in this church. But Bill Johnson, he goes, I have a question for you. He said, what is going to stop you from actually going through and doing what we're all talking about right now? What's going to stop you from this? And, and I looked at him, and I said, honestly, I'm going to leave this room, and I know I'm going to be tempted. I'm going to be tempted to go back on the commitment I'm making right now. And I go, if anything's going to stop me, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be, I'm going to fall into temptation. Interestingly, about eight hours later or so, I got a phone call from my boss who offered me a dream job, right? I got a phone call from my boss in Australia. He offered me a massive promotion, uh, accelerated the promotion. We taught I me mean, just, just everything I could imagine that I wanted. 
Um, I mean, it was, it's, I mean, it was, it's, it's still, there's this proverb says that the ox doesn't look backwards when it puts its nose to the bit, you know, uh, every now and then I look backwards and I think about that dream job, but, uh, but it was just one of those moments where I knew temptation was come. And I think just that conversation with Bill in that moment actually helped me reframe and know it's going to come right? And you, you just have to be, be willing to not, I mean, to, to withstand the temptation. So we see so much in this story, right? It, it's, it's, it's so easy to gloss over the story and just be like, oh yeah, Jesus got baptized by John. That was cool. Wasn't it awesome that he was humbly submitting himself to baptism, you know? I mean, then you just go right on past the story. But I want you guys to see is that Jesus is telling us for the first time who he is. He is the Messiah. And the Messiah is actually so much greater than what the Jewish people thought he was going to be. If they would open their ears, they would, have, they would have understood this idea of a suffering servant and a conquering king, right? It was a bigger story, a bigger messianic prophecy than what they even realized at the time. And God himself is making it known that that is his son who is going to fulfill all these prophecies. He's saying, I am here. And, and by the way, I'm not just going to lead you. I'm going to stand in your place and pay the price that you cannot pay, right? First time he's letting us know. He's saying, I'm initiating a ministry. The kingdom of God is here, right? I'm initiating this, and I'm going to show you what it looks like to initiate into ministry to take your life seriously. And by the way, when you do that, you're going to be tempted just like I was tempted, right? And, and I, think, I think we get so much of a lesson of what is, what is this life uh, all about uh, in this story. I want to end, as, as we kind of wrap up the lesson, is this idea that John was sitting there and he, he witnessed all of this, right? He was there for all of it. He played his part. He, he, he heard the voice. He was there for all of it. Yet when he's in prison, when he's in tough times, and he's being tempted in certain ways, he reaches out and says, Jesus, are you actually the one? Are you the one? And I think he says, are you the one, in, in a lot of ways, because he had heard about this ministry of Jesus, right? He had heard, while he was in prison, he had gotten all these word about what was going on, what Jesus was preaching, what he was doing, all the miracles that were occurring. He heard uh, about these things, and it was not what he expected at all. Right. It was outrageous. It was it was crazier than he expected. It was more powerful. I mean, it was just, it was so much different than what John expected the ministry of the Messiah to look like. Everyone had grown up with Psalm two, you know, just beat into their brains that that is what the Messiah was going to look like, and what Jesus was doing looked very very different. So John, in confusion and worry, I think to a certain extent, says, "Wait, wait." This was not my idea of what your ministry was going to be. Are you actually the one? Are you actually the one? And I got a lot of comfort when I looked at, when I looked at how Jesus actually answered John's question. Jesus in Matthew 11, 1 through 6, says this. said, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them. He said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Jesus answers John in John's moment of confusion by pretty much quoting Isaiah 42, right? He says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. He quotes the prophecy of Isaiah 42, and he goes, you were there, right? You were there. This is who I am. The prophecy is being fulfilled. I am the one. When I think about this year, I want you to have confidence in this idea that Jesus actually is who he says he is. He did what he said he was going to do, right? He stood in your place on that cross, right? He initiated his ministry in a way that you can initiate the way you follow Christ. He withstood temptation and he taught us the way. He's, he's, he's let us know over and over again, you are... Or I am the one, you are my children. And so I get a lot of comfort reading this passage, knowing that even John the Baptist doubted. John the Baptist saw it all occurring, but Jesus reminded him with ancient words and deeds of the day that he was the one and he's worthy of being followed. So those of you who think about this this year, as you guys really orient yourselves this year, uh, with your journey, with, with what it means to follow Christ, with what it means uh, to be a part of this church, with what it means to, to live a Christ-centered life. I just, I want you to have confidence that the life Jesus tells us to live is the right life, right? He gives us that confidence over and over again by reminding us that who he was when he came, and what it is he's called us to do, that he is the one with the power, uh, even, even when we doubt it. Make sense? All right, guys, let me pray for us. And Oh, yeah, sorry, got a question. That's a, that's a great point. So just, just for you guys on Zoom, what we're saying here is that this is also a great understanding for us that John was not worthy to baptize Jesus, right? He wasn't worthy to baptize Jesus. Uh, just like I am not worthy to baptize you guys. I mean, I'm not. Uh, but whenever I baptize someone, I baptize in the name of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is the one who is cleansing you of your sins. God is the one who is redeeming you. God is the one who stood in your place, right? And so, so that is a very good understanding of, of our faith. We are all one under Christ. Every now and then I'll get people who will send me a note and says, hey, will you pray because uh, God hears your prayers better than he does mine, right? And that's just not the truth, right? So, so it, it's, um, it, it's something we, we need to understand, uh, and, and I hope you guys get that. Whenever you engage with the pastors here at Crossings and everything, it's not faux humility, right? It's actually right doctrine, right, that, that, that we, we, we realize we are, none of us are worthy. All of us have sinned. All of us, all of us have fallen, uh, and when we baptize, we baptize in the name of God and God alone. Uh, you guys want to line up. I'll baptize all of you right now in the pond uh, if you've never been baptized. Uh, but, yeah, I'll go in first. I'll go in first. Yeah, we'll baptize everybody. But, uh, but I'll tell you what, I'll plant that seed. For anyone here who's never been baptized before, uh, or if you were baptized as a kid and, it, and maybe you, you walked away from God and, and you want that symbol to, to God, to your family and friends that you're taking your faith seriously, by all means, talk to me. Uh, we'll baptize you in the sanctuary or the vineyard or wherever it is or the chapel, uh, wherever it is, and, and, uh, or the pond. I'll get out in the pond if you want me to get in the pond. So, so um, you guys just, just uh, pray about that if that happens to be you. All right, well, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get out here today. 
Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you so much for your word. I, I, I thank you that we can sit here and understand uh, that we are, we are sinful, fallen creatures, every single one of us. And we are not capable of saving ourselves. We are not capable of living a life obedient to you on our own strength. But you came that day, you told us who you were, and you said you are not worthy, but I'm going to stand in your place. All righteousness will be fulfilled, and I'm doing it because I love you. And we thank you for that. May you watch over these men. I ask that you would increase their faith. May you give them the discipline to engage in your word. May you give them a spirit of hospitality as we gauge with each other this year. May you watch over them and their families. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.